good evening, Grace Downtown. My name is Scott Red, and I know I've got to meet many of you, but not all of you, so it's a joy to be with you tonight. And, and let me say it's a happy providence that we had a different verse in the bulletin than we had just read, because we're going to talk about that verse in the bulletin too. There's a lot going on there, as you can tell, that relates to what was going on in the book of Revelation. So Romans uh, has much to say about the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Now we've been going through this series on placemaking, and, and Glenn and Mike have been taking us through uh, what it means to be placemakers, where that comes from. We started, if you remember, back in Genesis, so it maybe makes sense that we end here in Revelation. We, we started with the creation of the heavens and the earth, and we end tonight with the new heavens and the new earth, another creative act. The whole book of Revelation, at the end of the day, is about the work of recreation finding its culmination in the passage that we read tonight. So this text that we just read, this passage from Revelation, verse 21, 1 through 5, is a passage for those who are desiring fulfillment. It's a, it's a passage for those who are feeling acutely their lack. It's a passage for the poor in spirit and the meek and mild it's for the hungry and the thirsty. It's for the ones who love mercy. This is a passage for the tired and the beat down and the persecuted and the forgotten and the afflicted and the conflicted and the disgraced and the slandered and the yearning. This is a text for the how long, O Lords. This is a text for the Maranathos. It's a text for the come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the text for I will wait, and who can stand, and I don't know if I can make it. This is a text for those who desire the kingdom of God. So this vision of the new heavens and new earth that we have laid before us here in the book of Revelation is a beautiful vision. It's one that we can relate to in part and one that we can't relate to, and that's by design. So as we delve into it now, let's open first in prayer, and then we want to delve into the picture of the place the eternal place, the final place, the perfect place that the Lord has set aside for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time. I pray that you give us wisdom as we come before you into this book that is beautiful and wondrous and mysterious and at times hidden and at times totally vexing. Father, we lift up our reading of your word that we would understand it and where we don't understand it that we would trust and where we're not sure we would still hear the voice of our shepherd who speaks to us because we're his sheep and that the spirit would hear his voice within us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the book of Revelation is ultimately about the hard-won vision that we just read about, this picture of beauty and abundance and change and light after a long season of judgment and suffering and lack and conflict and hiddenness. It's a hard-won vision that we arrive at here in Revelation 21. And the book itself is kind of unified in this, and it's all moving towards this end. It's this unified vision declaring one message, and that is that Jesus Christ reigns over the heavens 
and the earth. The whole book is unified. It's one unity of revelation making this point. We can make this in a variety of different ways, but let me just do it with the idea of the number seven that shows up over and over and over again in the book. The book starts with letters to churches. How many churches? Seven churches. And then it goes on to the book of destiny that's opened up to describe the history of humanity, the, sometimes called the scroll, but the way the seals work, it's a good argument that it's a book, that it's a codex, and that they're popping the seals, and as they pop it, new phases of human history are unveiled or are disclosed. How many seals are there? There's seven seals, and then we finally get to the last of the seals, and what happens? We pop it, and there's seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets are declaring what is to come, and that includes seven angels, and seven angels come and they open up seven bowls of justice for God's people and for humanity. You see, this number seven just keeps coming up over and over again throughout the book, and what is it telling us? It's telling us of the fullness of the story, the fullness of the account. I think here in the last book of the Bible, we're supposed to be kind of thinking about the first book in the Bible, and the last chapters of the Bible, thinking about the first chapter of the Bible in which seven is the week. It's the time that's set aside for God to do the work of making the heavens and earth. And then we find all of human history is in a way the sevenfold time period. The time moving towards the making of the new heavens and the new earth. This is a unified revelation of Jesus Christ and his lordship over the church and the whole of the land, the whole of the earth. Now, I want to look at how the Apostle John, writing this revelation, this apocalypse, I want to talk about how he describes, how he chooses to describe for us this place that God is making for us in eternity. Now, I want to point out a couple things about this. First of all, as you know, he's writing in captivity. He's writing in exile on the island of Patmos, where he's been sent away because of his faith. He's in relative isolation, apart from those who are bringing him food and sustenance. He's probably wanting in some ways for conversation, for intimacy, for community. So this isn't Alfred. This this revelation doesn't come out of like a, a place of wealth and affluence and complacency. It comes out of a place of isolation and captivity and lack and scarcity. So it's important for us as we look at what he writes about the new heavens and new earth that he's not writing it from some kind of Pollyannish, everything's going to turn out okay kind of view. He's writing it from the point of view who someone who is, of someone who is needful, who is yearning, and who is desiring these things to be true. He's talking about the hope in which he settles, the hope that is founded on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So we see here a, a new age being established. There's a thing that is new. The one who sits on the throne, Jesus Christ, the revelation of the Father. He says, I am making all things new. This is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the current age that we live in now, this is the old age, okay, in light of these kind of arrangements. The old age, the time of now, the time in between the fall and this new heavens and new earth that we're looking forward to. And and, and that age is described throughout the New Testament as well. It's described as being an age of bondage and decay. Described as being an age that is aching 
in this passage in your, in your bulletins, in, in Romans 8, aching like, like a woman who's in childbirth, and she's right at the edge of giving birth, and that pain of, 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 of childbirth that is suffering, that, that incredible yearning for the thing to be over, and yet very much being in the middle of the suffering, and you're longing with earnest expectation, like a mother waiting to give birth to her child. Paul says that's what this whole age is like. There's a kind of yearning and a pain at the same time, and that we all have it. I don't think it's just true of Christians, as a matter of fact. It's something that all humans intuit at a level. We intuit the suffering. We intuit the wrongness. And yet there is this kind of sense of meaning that we can't quite get away from. And if you don't have it in Christ, you're going to create other causes, other sources of the meaning, other sources that you're working towards or you're hoping for. And maybe that's science and Maybe that's culture, maybe that's just you having a happy life, or whatever it is, but there's, there's things that we put our hopes in that give expression to this sense that I think all humanity has of things not being quite right and yet waiting, looking for something down the road to give meaning and dignity and honor to our lives. The apostles like... Peter say, 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, he says, this current heavens and earth must pass away. It has to dissolve. It has to be done away with so that God can create the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I want to point out something about this language of new heavens and new earth. Notice there's both a continuity and a discontinuity in this. There's, there's, a, there's a discontinuity between the thing that's coming. It's new. It's not old, it's new. It's, there's a discontinuity. It's something that we can't, we haven't experienced in this new heavens and new earth. And yet we also should notice, and I think Christians sometimes miss this, there's a continuity as well. It is still heavens and earth. There's a newness to it. There's a discontinuity. There's this, this will be a new place. There will be a change. You'll open your eyes and you'll say, this isn't like it was before. You're going to say things like this, what Paul says, citing the prophets. That, that hope that we have, right, that hope that is to come, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, like this. He says, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. There's a discontinuity. There's something about this, and I can even guess at what some of those things are that I can't imagine. Like, what does human life look like? What does biological life look like without death? Right? And I mean like the dying of seeds to make trees and, and, and skin decaying. What's it going to be like to not have sin racking your conscience and your spirit and your body and your mind? What's that going to be like to not have shame, to not have that trauma holding you back? I, I, no eye has seen. No ear has heard. I, I can't, the mind of man can't imagine. So there is discontinuity. I can't imagine it, but I can gesture towards it. I can put my hope in it. Say that it's true, even if I don't know how it's true. So there's a great discontinuity. I'd point out, by the way, there's a great continuity as well. This isn't just new. It's heavens and earth. Just as we understand the heavens above and the earth around us, we can understand the world to come as a kind of heavens and earth. The text invites us to imagine. Paul said the heart of man can't imagine, but this text invites us by describing it, invites us to imagine. You're invited to imagine here a highly symbolic apocalyptic text 
and we have categories for it. We can say a few things. It is real. This is not like an abstract symbol for some kind of you know, uh, ephemeral reality. This is real. This is new heavens and new earth. This will be physical and spiritual. Now, what is that going to look like exactly? It's hard to say. And yet there will be aspects of it that have continuity with this world that we're living in today. You might say, well, this is all, this is all very interesting after all, but um, you know, what, what kind of pictures do we get of this? You know, how, what, what, what's the similarity? I think one guide we have already is the resurrected Christ because the resurrected Christ is the first citizen of the new heavens and new earth to walk the earth. And what do we notice about him? There's some things that are different, aren't there? And Mary can be in the garden and say, oh, is that a gardener? Who? I didn't quite recognize him. You know, the, the, the apostles on the road to Emmaus will say, didn't our hearts burn within us? Our hearts recognized continuity, but our, our eyes couldn't recognize him. And yet at the same time, he can hold out his hands to Thomas. Those, those are the same holes, the same place in his side. There's continuity in the body of Christ just as much as there's discontinuity. We should expect the same thing, I believe, of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, well, John lays out for us kind of three themes. He wants to describe the new heavens and the earth according to three themes. And all of these themes have a kind of newness, a discontinuity, and a kind of oldness that is a continuity with the time that was before. So the three themes are this. We have the theme of the sea or the lack thereof, right? The sea being gone. And then we have this theme of the Jerusalem descending down. And then lastly, we have the theme of God dwelling with us. And so I want to just look at these three themes in brief tonight. So the sea, the sea or the lack thereof. There was no sea, we're told, in this new heavens and new earth. Now, as somebody who enjoys uh, the beach, I grew up on the coast, I, I surf. Okay, I got to surf in Indonesia this summer. It was amazing. I think, no sea? Really? No sea? Is that, is that really what's going to happen? I thank God that New Testament authors say, this is probably highly symbolic. Okay? So maybe, maybe, but we have to be, whatever it is, it's going to be glorious, right? But there's no sea. What's the point of that? Well, you know, so the, the fishermen in the community might say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean no sea? How are we going to make a living? You have to remember that throughout the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis 1, the sea, the, 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 the vastness of the water is always a picture of chaos and death. What, what is happening actually in in the creation of the heavens and the earth. It says the earth was what? Formless and void. Tohu vabohu. It was the, the warp and the weft of the ocean come, rising and falling as if in a storm. There's no way life can happen there. So what has to happen? Land needs to be drawn up out of it. We see this image come up over and over and over again when Jonah wants to run off away from the Lord and escape him by taking a boat. Notice he goes down to Yafo and he can't get on an Israelite boat to sail out into the Mediterranean because no good Israelite would be caught dead on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean because the sea is where death and chaos is. Even remember after Jonah is thrown out into the sea, he reflects on his journey in Jonah 2, and he has a poem where he says, I was, in the, I was in the waves, I went down to the seaweed, where's that? That's at the bottom, and then where did I go after that? I went into Sheol, because that's where Sheol is, it's down at the bottom of the sea. You see, in the ancient world, the sea, the ocean, the waters are proof positive that there is at least gods, if not the God of creation, because the sea 
is the thing that cannot be controlled. It's the thing that's beyond us. It's the absurd. It's like space. It's like galaxies. It's like what happens when we look into that web telescope and we see far, far away. It's even absurd to me to, to imagine something like that, the vastness of that vacuum. And yet we should be struck that Jesus in his ministry, when he's faced with the sea, and he's faced with the ocean coming over the sides of his boat and his apostles who've seen him raise people from the dead and cast out angels say, Lord, Lord, don't you know that we're perishing? And what does Jesus do? He stands on the bow of that boat and he says, peace, be still. Notice he doesn't say, in the name of the Lord, peace, be still. He doesn't say, dear Father, please still the ocean. He says, peace, be still. And what happens? Immediately. What is he showing us there? He's not just a prophet. He's not just a wonder worker. Stepping forward as creator of the universe. And he calms the wind and the waves, just like he did back in Genesis 1. You see, in his new kingdom, death is done away with, decay, chaos, and destruction is gone. And the best way to say that, if you're the Apostle John, is there is no sea. Just prior to this, in chapter 20, verse 13, right before he tells us this, notice what he says. He says, And the sea gave up her dead. Because that's where the dead are. They're in the sea. She's given up her dead. There's no more need for death anymore. There's no more need for the sea. The sea is gone. The tears are wiped away. The crying and the mourning has ceased. In this new kingdom, this new heavens and earth that Jesus is making. So that's theme one. There's no more sea. There's no more death. The cause of our suffering is gone. Theme two is this. Now Jerusalem descends out of heaven onto this new earth. You see, the opposite of the sea is the land, or more specifically, the land of God's redemption, the place, his staging ground, out of which he's bringing new creation. And that's what Jerusalem is in the Old Testament. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God calls Jerusalem, he doesn't name it by name, but he calls the town where you go, and he says, in the place where I put my name. God placemaking. You've heard us talk about that this semester. Semester, sorry. This season. <laughs> I teach, I'm sorry. You've heard us talk about that this, this season, this fall season. Um, what does he do? He puts his name there. He puts his place there, and that's where God is. He's working out of Jerusalem. It's why Zion, the mount that Jerusalem is built on, becomes the symbol of God's deliverance, the place out of which God's deliverance comes. It comes out of Zion. Now, an interesting thing happens when Christ comes, the Messianic king. He goes into Jerusalem, but he doesn't take his place on a throne. He takes his place on a cross. He rises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it raises the question for the apostles, where is our Jerusalem now if our Davidic king is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Where is our Jerusalem now? And so we get passages like this, where Paul says, our hope now is in the heavenly Jerusalem where our king reigns. Galatians 5.24, Paul is comparing unbelieving to believing Israel. And he's making this comparison where he says, unbelieving Israel is kind of like Hagar, the old uh, you know, Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael story. And, and believing Israel is kind of like you know, uh, Sarah with, 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 Jake, uh, with Isaac. You know, his, his point is this, they're both in line, they're both genetically related to Abraham, and yet one receives the promise and one does not. He goes on and applies it to Israel and Jerusalem today. And this is what he says. He goes, now Mount Hagar, Hagar rather, is Mount Sinai. That's the law, and that's in Arabia. 
She corresponds to present Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above, the son of David reigns, is freed, and she is our mother. The author of Hebrews says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. What? The heavenly Jerusalem. You see, when John talks about Jerusalem descending out of heaven onto earth, he's talking about the followers of the messianic king. He's talking about those sons and daughters of Israel who believed in David and those Christians, those Gentiles who are grafted in by faith, kind of unexpectedly even to the apostles. They didn't see it coming like that. And coming in and becoming that worshiping community that now joins together in their citizenship of Jerusalem, but that is the Jerusalem in heaven. Jerusalem on earth was always a staging ground. It was always D-Day. It was always ground zero for God's plan of redemption in the world. It was always that, but it was never the end goal. The end goal was always the whole earth. The end goal was always the ends of the earth. So as we see Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, what are we seeing here? We're seeing ourselves. We're seeing the followers of Christ. We're seeing those who have been redeemed in his death, that their sin has been atoned for, and now they have been made new through his spirit and united with him because he, after all, is the Israelite who ran the race, who received the prize. And we're now united with him, and we are joined to him in our deaths as we go to heaven. Death has lost its sting. It's a shadow of what it once was. And now here in the new heavens and new earth, that community, that collective body of Christ descends as heavenly Israel descending on the earth. I want to just point this out. I don't want you to miss this. You see, we are made glorious for God. We are made glorious for our groom. We are made beautiful and acceptable and lovable to the one who created every single example that we have of those things. If you think something's beautiful, if you think it's glorious, if you think it's wondrous, God made that, and you will be made in such a way that he will receive you as greater than all of those things that you call beautiful. What does that mean for us? That means that the unfair treatment, the abuse, the favoritism, the slander, the false accusations that have been leveled leveled against the followers of Christ will be proved definitively wrong because she'll be beautiful. Justice will indeed be done. And yes, that also means the errors, the sins, the failures, the church hurt, backsliding, will be cleansed away in the fire of judgment and new creation. Jerusalem will be made beautiful. It shall be presented to her king. So that's our first image. We have the sea, and the sea's done away with. Then we have Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem is presented as beautiful and acceptable and true and good. And then finally, we have the God who dwells with humanity. I think we need all of these things for this ingredient to make sense, for this new creation to work. Six, uh, sin, a death, rather, and sin is done away with. New Jerusalem will be presented as a bride to Christ. Finally, God himself now will dwell on earth. Yes, this is going all the way back to that battle cry title that Isaiah gives that little boy in Isaiah 7. God will be with us. That's the hope for King Ahaz. That's the hope for Israel. And that's the hope for the world that one day Emmanuel will be true. God will indeed be with us. We find that hope in the garden. We find it in the temple. 
find that Jesus walks along the byways of Judea with his apostles. We find it as the Spirit indwells us now today. Remember when we talked about the temple and that we're the temple now. We are God with us. But God will be with us in full. You know what this means? I want to put it this way because I think we sometimes miss it. We sometimes think, okay, God will be with us, so I won't have anything to fear. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely right. God will be with us. We are made in his image. At our very core, at our ground of being, we are referential beings. We are referential creatures. We're not just about ourselves. We've always been pointing to another. We are image bearers. And in our very core, we point to the God whose image we bear. This means that we were never meant to live in alienation from the God who has made a place for us. We are never meant to be separated from him. And I think that's why the pain of the life of unbelief is so staggering. It's so existential. It's so complete. It mars everything because it breaks the bond. It breaks that close intimacy between ourselves and the God that we image, the God whose glory we reflect. I think this also helps us explain that incredible pain that we all experience when we see that tragedy of human suffering, particularly when it's public, when it's on the streets of our city, and we see it around us, and we see the suffering. There's something deeply wrong and broken about it, something that goes on just goes beyond just our kind of sense of solidarity with our species. There's something more about it. Every yearning of this life, I would argue because we are image bearers of the Lord, every yearning of this life is a yearning for the glory that God alone provides because we are ultimately meant to be in communion with him. And this way, we can say of the fruit of sin, of unbelief, that it is death, that it is mourning, that it is crying, but now that that has come to an end because now God is with us and we experience him in full, we can say that all of those things have passed away. But I want to be careful about something here, and I want to use the the example of Jesus' resurrection to make this point. There's a wonderful quote by one of my favorite authors, J.R. Tolkien, okay? You've probably heard this quote before. And it's the, it's the hope that they're longing for in the Lord of the Rings. And what do they say? That in that time, the time of fulfillment, all sad things will be made untrue. Probably heard that quote before. I think that's a good quote as far as it goes, but I actually think our hope in Christ is different. And why is that? Because when the apostles ask to see him, they see the wounds. The crucifixion was sad, but it doesn't become untrue. They, they, they see the cut. That was sad, but it doesn't become untrue. What does it become, though? The fact that Christ bears the stigmata before us, I think, reminds us that those sad things will become now glorious. That the pain that you're experiencing is not a false thing. It's not an illusion. It's not some kind of trick of the mind. It's real, and God will make it glorious. He won't make it untrue. He'll make it glorious and unto his glory. I think that's why we can say with Paul in Romans 8 in your bulletin there that the sufferings that we have right now aren't even comparable to the glories that await us. Sufferings that we have right now are going to be kind of lost into the background of the glory that we receive in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope. You see, we're not waiting for a world populated with all the things you want in this life. 
We're not waiting for a world filled with nice cars and friends and, and uh, you know, you know, gold gold chains and good TV shows and ice cream, okay? We're not waiting for that kind of world. You know, I was watching the series Good Place, and yes, I have watched the whole series. I won't spoil it for you, okay? For those of you who got really nervous, but their view of heaven, while it's fun and it's kind of an interesting kind of look at philosophy, I would point out that the view of heaven is a view that I think a lot of Westerners have. It's kind of the place you go where you enjoy all the things you love in life, and then maybe at some point you decide, okay, I've had enough, and you kind of turn off. Right? You're going to enter into non-existence or something like that. Okay? You may think that's what it is, but that's not what it is. You see, when we are joined together with the God who dwells within us, the God who dwells with us, the God who has made us in his image, we realize that he is now cutting out the middlemen. We don't need the ice cream. We don't need the reputation. We don't need the wealth. Because we have the thing that all of those things are pointing us towards. We have the thing that we were trying to get when we went for those things and made those idols out of them, right? When we were going for that, we were trying to get the glory of God and we'll have it around us immediately. We cut out the middleman. And that's the part that I believe no eye has seen and no ear has heard. You've heard rumors of it. You've maybe even smelled a scent of the new heavens and new earth when you're in worship here, maybe in a friendship, maybe in your own private prayer. In those moments of closeness to God, we sense it, we find suggestions of it, but now we will experience it in full. So this is the place that we're longing for. And let me just end with this. Why do we make place? We make place because our God makes place. That's what the story of the Bible is about, ultimately. It's God making his place with us. We make place because we're made in his image, and we're called to make place like he makes place. That's why we're embodied. That's why we care about the city where God has placed us. Let me point out this as well in light of Revelation 21. We make place with hope. We're not just spinning our wheels. We're not just going through the motions because this is kind of like what Christians do or something. We're making place with hope. As Paul says, we're not working in vain. We're looking forward to that day of Christ, that new heavens of new and new earth that is not an abstract idea. It's not an ephemeral spiritual existence. But rather, it's a physical hope. It's a physical city. It's a bit, every bit as real as the city that beats around us tonight. It's every bit as real. But we hope in the city made new in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up again this time. I pray that you would help us to have that hope. Long for that vision that John provides us with. I pray, Lord, that as we look at it, that we would find our, our, our own imaginations converted to the glory of Christ and the glory that he's called us to. That, that we would find the world around us animated and electrified by this hope that we have in a new heavens and new earth. Lord, let us not ignore where we are. Let us not be of so... Uh, you're so heavenly minded as it said that we're not of earthly good because we know that you care about the heavens and the earth and that you are making them new. Pray, Lord, that we would do that in wisdom and in charity and in love and in hope. In Christ's name we pray.